Let's look at Mark 13. Let me just read the first part of it, and then we'll kind of get a little bit of context here. Um, starting verse 1, it says, And as he, he being Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay, so uh, we've been studying our way through the book of Mark for many, many years now. And we're going to pick it up today, and this will take us all the way to the end of the book, all the way, like, through 30 days of prayer, through Lent, all the way to Easter. and Which means we're going to talk a lot about the last couple of days of, of Holy Week. And so Jesus has spent a good bit of time already during this week of his life um, basically offering words of uh, rebuke about the temple. And so the, the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be a place of holiness, a place where uh, the presence of God was uh, like man- made manifest among his people, a, a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place of generosity and hospitality, and a place for the nations as people came through Jerusalem that they would be able to see the temple and experience what was happening there. And all of it was designed to point people to God. And yet it had become a place where uh, it was full of greed and hypocrisy, and uh, struggles for power, and injustice, and uh, all just all kind of problems. And it was not pointing to God anymore. And so Jesus, uh, at one point, he compared it to a fig tree, where you see it from a distance, and it's it's got the big leaves and everything, and so you assume there's fruit there, but when you get up close to it and you start to examine it, it's completely barren. He said, that's what the temple is. It's a big, beautiful building that's not fulfilling its purpose. And so the disciples, who are perpetually obtuse, were like, yeah, but isn't it pretty? <laughs> and Jesus was like, uh, okay, let's have a little chat. Uh, everything that you see is going to be destroyed. And so they ask a question that he spends the rest of this chapter un, like basically uh, answering. They want to know, look at verse 4, when will these things be? So when is this destruction going to happen? And two, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Jesus order, answers them in an order. First he says what's going to happen, and then he says when. And so today will be what, next week will be when. And uh, right out of the gate, let me go ahead and say this. This chapter is uh, very much misunderstood in a lot of ways because it has a lot of language that our like more modern culture has grabbed onto as having to deal with like the end times and the antichrist and Armageddon and like all these things that like Nick Cage and Kirk Cameron have joined forces to teach us about. Right. Um, and, uh, that's not in a primary sense. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, there's certainly room for, um, that conversation of figuring out which of these things has to do with like the end of time and that and all that stuff. Uh, but that's not Jesus' primary intention, and so that's not going to be our primary intention. 
So if you were thinking like, man, finally we get to talk about the Antichrist. I'm very sorry to make you sad. We'll not talk about the Antichrist today. Uh, um, so, uh, but this is dealing with something that is uh, incredibly significant and uh, very good for us to be dialed into. So, Starting in verse 5, this is the beginning of Jesus' long answer to what is going to happen. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Okay? So, they want to know when, and uh, they want to know when, but at first he says, let me tell you what's going to happen. And he's describing things that they're going to want to read into. They're going, to, they're going to hear about a war. And remember, the word traveled very slowly back then compared to now. And so they're going to hear wars and rumors of wars or earthquakes and famines and all these kind of things. And you, he says, you're going to try to assign a meaning to that. You're going to, you're going to try to read into it. And other people are going to try to like read into it. Uh, don't fall for it. That's just normal, like the world is broken stuff. Okay? And as true as it was for them, it's so true for us now. Right, because uh, there are all these folks that are that claim to be in the, in in the Christian worldview, and they are making millions of dollars uh, over uh, overthinking and overanalyzing every little thing that happens in the Middle East and globally and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus is telling his disciples, and I think we, it applies to us as well. Just don't fall for it. Those things are just normal, like everyday stuff in a world that's broken and needs to be redeemed. Don't read into it. Don't overanalyze it. And don't let really um, smooth-talking leaders try to convince you that more is going on than there actually is. Uh, Definitely apply to them, and I think it applies to us as well, which is not the point of today, but I just thought appropriate. Okay, let's keep going. Um, He says it's the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, so remember that that, that idea that, that, yeah, there's... There's something, something is happening, but that's just the, it's just the beginning of it. Look at the next part, verse 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand of what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So, he starts off saying there will be wars and famines, all these kinds of things, and and really bad leaders are going to get in front of you and try to lead you down the wrong path. Uh, that's all coming uh, to you, and he says, but there's something else coming. We can just call it persecution. 
that he's saying, because you are one of mine, because you are a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, um, you're going to get arrested and beaten and charged, and you're going to have to speak uh, words of testimony, and the Holy Spirit, is he's going to hook you up. like He's going to give you the words to say, don't, don't worry about that. And you just need to endure all the way to the end. See, Christians, uh, they were, they were nonviolent because Jesus was nonviolent. So, in the midst of what's going on in this point in time, you have this, this ongoing tension between the Jews and the Romans. And they hated each other and they're having to coexist and there's just, it's a whole big thing. Now, the Romans hated the Christians because they wouldn't join them to fight the Jews. And the Jews hated the Christians because they wouldn't join them to fight the Romans. And so Jews and, Ro- and Romans are fighting each other, and they look at the Christians, and they were like, we are traitors to both of us. And so they all hated the Christians. And so the persecution was coming not only from Rome, but also from the Jewish community, which was their former religion for the most part. And so uh, a really difficult time, and we know that all of this happened. And so... Um, in the, in the worst of it, he's saying, look, when it, when it gets really bad, don't, don't stress over what to say. The Spirit's going to give you the words. So um, during this persecution, you endure the crisis, right? You stand firm. You trust the Lord. You, you give witness to what is happening. Uh, you endure, and you'll, you'll be saved. And in case you're listening to that, uh, and you're thinking, that sounds right. You know, like, of course, Jesus would say that. And of course, the disciples would probably say, amen, brother, you know, but did, would they really do it? Um, well, we know that they really did it. And here's, here's why. Because when you read the book of Acts, what Jesus just described is, is exactly the narrative that Acts just, like lays out in front of us. He's predicting that Acts is going to happen. Everything that we see happen there. So we know that they heard his words, and it wasn't they didn't just nod along, that they internalized that, because he's telling them, when this happens, this is exactly how you need to handle it. And then when it happened, that's how they handle it. So when you read the book of Acts, this is where a lot of that stuff is beginning. This is where they were trained of how to endure their persecution. And not only do we know it because of the book of Acts, we also know it because we're sitting in the room, right? Like, you and I are not here if they don't... Take Jesus seriously in this moment. And so this is, this is big for them, this is big for you, big for me, big for us. Uh, a significant moment in the history of the church is Jesus preparing them for how to endure this terrible thing that was coming forward. And so um, he's like, okay, uh, normal big events in the world, don't read into it. Okay, Persecution is coming, endure it. Um, then he makes a pivot. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand this, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, there's a lot in that one one deal. And you can see why people are like, oh, the Antichrist, right? He's standing where he's not supposed to be. That's not what Jesus is talking about in a primary sense. So when he says the abomination of, uh, of desolation, he's referring to something that they would have known from their history. So if you read Daniel 9, 11, 12, um, there is this prophetic word about someone coming into the temple 
and desecrating it in a way that is, uh, could, could be labeled an abomination. And so Daniel is saying, someone's going to come into the temple and they're going to do something to, com- to, to take a holy place and to make it evil, to do something to mock God in, uh, in the most sacred building on the earth to us. And then we know from historical records that that happened at some point. And there's a little bit of debate over which of the specific examples, because it happened a few different ways, but every historian is like, this thing in Daniel that he said was going to happen, it happened. And everyone in the, in the Jewish community would know about it. So when you reference the abomination of desolation, they're all going back to this historical moment when some, someone went into the temple and um, sacrificed to an idol, essentially. Jesus is saying, that's going to happen again. So when you see it, uh, you'll know, because uh, you've heard about it, but it's going to happen again. And look at what he tells them to do. When it happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He doesn't say to endure that one. He doesn't say to hang in there and stand firm. He doesn't say to attack them. He doesn't say, he says, you run for your life when this happens. And then he expands upon it a little bit more. Look at verse 15. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house or take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it not happen in winter. So he's giving examples of of everyday life. He's like, I don't care if you're at home. I don't care if you're at work. I don't care if you're having a baby or nursing a baby or whatever. You run. And you better hope it's not winter because that's when the, the Jordan River floods its banks and it's going to make it really hard to get to the mountains for you to be safe. But don't rationalize it. When you see that this has happened, when you see that someone has, has taken the temple and that sacrifice is happening, you, you got to get out. And then look what he says. It just keeps getting worse. Verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now. And never will be. Now think about it. There's a lot of terrible things that have happened in human history. And Jesus is telling them, this is the worst one. Like this is the darkest day. Up to that point and since that point. Verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose... He shortened the days. Okay, he's saying, if, if you just let this event continue to play out, uh, there, there is no one, there's no surviving Christian. The gospel's not getting to the nations, you know, because everyone will die. And so Jesus is saying, God's going to cut short this whole event uh, in order to preserve a remnant. That the faithful Israel, he says elect, and we tend to go over here with that word, but don't go over here with that word. Just think of like the faithful, like we, we know who Jesus is. That has to be preserved. And so God is not going to let this situation play its way all the way out because no one will survive. That's how bad, that's how bad this is. Now, everything that Jesus describes up to this point, we know on this side of history that all this stuff happened. 
the historian Josephus uh, has documented the Jewish-Roman war that's, that was from 66 to 70. Okay, So they're sitting here in like 33 or so. Um, 66 to 70 is this war between, between the Jews and the, Rome, and the Romans, and it comes to its escalation in 70 when they see, make a siege in Jerusalem, they take the temple, and they burn it to the ground. Um, they melt all the, like, to the point there was such heat where all the gold that was there seeped its way into the stones. And then they, uh, after everything cooled off, they dug up all the stones because they're greedy and they wanted all the gold. And so when Jesus says, none of these stones are going to be laying on top of each other, it's to that point that like, they're going to uproot it all out of their own greed. Um, it was bad. And if you ever read Josephus's, that's a weird word to say, Josephus's account of what happened, it is as gruesome of, uh, of an event as you can imagine. So we're, we're, it's, we're on, you know, we know what happened now, but to them, it's ahead of them on a timeline. And so Jesus has just basically described a horrific future for them, right? He's like, don't worry about the wars and the famines and the, don't even worry about the persecution, but you need to worry about this thing. And you run to the mountains. Don't stay and fight. Run. But why? I mean, in one sense, Jesus was nonviolent. He's a pacifist. And so in one sense, that makes sense. Like, don't fight. But why run? Why not stay and die? Isn't that the honorable thing? Isn't that what like you would say in the face of the persecution and other things prior to this? Well, typically, yes, but... Jesus is saying this, this event is different, um, but you need to run because this, this is bigger than this event. It's not just about a, a really intense battle that got out of hand and, and we just need to save some lives. He's like, no, you're, you're preserving a moment in history where everything pivots from one direction into another direction. Like the temple being destroyed had a massive impact on the history of humanity. You have you have the the Jewish community who all who all in one in one moment they they lost uh, the their place of worship where God was they lost the sacrificial system which was the only way for them to atone for their sins and they lost all the priests who were there um, like connecting them to God they they lost their entire like world I heard one one pastor I was listening to some sermons on this he said it wasn't. What Jesus is describing is not the end of the world, but it's the end of a world. It's the end of their world as they knew it. And so he's trying to help them understand, like, nothing will be the same after this. And if you think about it, Judaism today looks nothing like Judaism of the Old Testament, ex- except for the Orthodox Jews and the figure I came across said that they think that 2% of the people in the, wor- in the world who, who are Jewish are, are considered Orthodox Jews. And, um, you know, they're, they, they still practice the old ways. But 98% completely shifted into a different means of practicing because there's no temple. There's no sacrificial system. There's no, so they just kind of like reinvent themselves, so to speak. That's why it looks so different now. It's one one of the reasons. That's the big reason. That's where it all started. And so Jesus is saying this is a this is a moment where um, everything is going to be different. So so think about it in terms of a timeline. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. They're about to 
go into the Passover time with him, the Last Supper, everything in John 13 through 17, like all of that, like beauty, Gethsemane, arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, resurrection, ascension, Holy Spirit comes. Like they're on the front end of that whole progression of events. And so there's probably sitting there, not really understanding that, like this, this event in 70, from this moment until 70, this is one massive shift of faith, moving from this old sacrificial system, old covenant, all these kind of things. All of those events work together with the resurrection as the most important to push everything in a completely different direction. And that's what he's referencing in the next part. He, he quotes from Isaiah and he quotes from Daniel. And we don't really contextualize these very quickly because we are from a different time. But look at what he says. Um, in 21, he says, If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe them. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you these things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, okay, from, from 70 on, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now that's a quote from Isaiah 13 that they would have recognized and they would have been like, oh yeah, that he's referencing an event where everything was different after that. That's essentially what would have been communicated according to all the really smart Bible people. They would have heard that and they would say, oh, this is a seismic shift. Everything, there's a marker in time where everything is different after this. Um, and uh, look at verse 26. This is a quote from Daniel 7, or a reference to Daniel 7. He says, uh, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Daniel 7, there's this mysterious figure that's, that's called the Son of Man. This is the appearing of God to himself. And, and some people will read that and they're like, oh, that's the second coming. He's riding on, a, on the clouds. But in, when you go back and read it in Daniel, he's not coming to the earth. He's going up to God. He's using those two things to say, here's, here's what the seismic shift is all about. Is that there, there's, the temple is destroyed because there's no longer a need for a temple. The temple was thought of the overlap point between heaven and earth. And he says, that's not the overlap point. Guess what, guess what the overlap point is? Jesus is the overlap. He says, I'm the son of man coming on the clouds, like going to meet the Lord. It's this moment of vindication is the word that I kept seeing in different writings. Vindication, which is just proving that Jesus is who he said he is the whole time. For some, it only took watching him die. And rise again. That was enough. But for some, it took the temple being destroyed, just like he said that it would. This whole sequence of events, all of them lumped together, are taking humanity and saying, you don't need a temple anymore because you have Jesus. You don't need a sacrificial system anymore because you have Jesus. You, you don't need a priesthood anymore because you have Jesus. You don't need this and this and this and this and this and this and this anymore because Jesus is all that you need. So from the... From the cross, to the resurrection, to the ascension, to the coming of the Holy Spirit, and for the next 30-something years until the war breaks out and then the temple is destroyed, it's one thing after another, all of them grouped together that are saying, Jesus is the one. 
He's all that you need. Everything is different now. That's what he's communicating to them in this moment. I'm sure that they were overwhelmed. It says in verse 27, he'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. What does that mean? From this pivot point forward, okay, from 33 to 70, you'd lump that in as one big shift. At that point, that's going to bring the gospel to the nations, and Jesus will begin gathering his children. He's just gathering, gathering us together, gathering us together. This is what we do today. We're gathered together. He's preparing them for something. So verse 28 says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. Now he's not talking about the other fig tree analogy. This is another fig tree. He like doubled up on his analogies, but I'm sure he can get away with it. Um, it says, As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He's, he's telling them, you are going to experience this. This is not way off in the distant future. This is in your immediate future. And you might not think 30, 40 years is immediate future, but it is. And so that's part of why this is not about the second coming and Armageddon and all those kinds of things. This is about them. And he's looking these, these men and women in the eye that he loves, and he's saying, you are about to go through some stuff. But don't forget what's on the other side of it. Don't forget what's on the other side of your pain, your suffering, and you're running for your life. Don't, don't forget that God is doing something here. This is not just a series of unfortunate events. This is God at work among you. There's a purpose to it. Verse 31, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth is kind of a little colloquialism for the temple, because that's where they overlapped, right? Say, heaven and earth, the temple, it's going to pass away. But my words, they, they will endure. And I read someone said this, that like today you can't go to the temple because it's destroyed. And yet here we are this morning, rallied around the very words of God that have endured and will endure. And so this is, this is huge for them and huge for us. As we, on this side of history, are able to look back and, um, and in one sense realize like what... What faith has gone ahead of us and the legacy that we're a part of and um, the people when you get to the new earth that you want to find to thank, you know? Because they didn't just sit there and hear the words of Jesus and be like, I don't know, I'll figure it out for myself. They internalized this. And when things got difficult, they, they knew what to do. And maybe not all of them, but Peter did. John did. Many of them did. So that kind of history built on the fact that we believe Jesus is 
who he said he is, to the point they're willing to die for it. Now, for us, so that's all the like what's going to happen part. Talk next week about when. And that gets a little more murky, but uh, he told him what was going to happen, and it did, basically. And so what does this have to do with us? In, in addition to the gratitude, right? Like I, I read this, and I'm, so, I'm grateful for those men and women who took Jesus seriously. And I look at that, and I say, you know, I, that's, I want to be one of those people, you know? Like, I, I don't want to be one of those one of those people who tries to poke holes in everything and find a way around everything. And like, I don't, I don't like, I want to be discerning and all, the, all that kind of stuff, but I want to be someone who's like, well, Jesus said to do this. And so that I'm going to do that. Like, like I, if I'm going to go out, I want to go out in faith, believing that. And so i I find it challenging. Um, but it also makes sense to think of, of kind of like this big picture thing that's, that's happening that, that Jesus is telling them, uh, yeah, there's this event that's going to change everything. Um, but to think about the stuff before that, the persecution, the world events, like all those kinds of things, he's just like, you just need to trust God as you go through it. You just endure the, you endure the difficult parts of life because God is active through those things. Like God is using those things to bring about a completely new world. He calls them birth birth pains, right? These are the these are the the contractions, and the birth pains. And yes, the closer to birth, the contractions get worse, and the pain gets more intense, and all that stuff. Um, but there comes a point where there's a new life on the other side of it, right? And so I feel I should not speak to this, and no disrespect to any of the women that I'm speaking as though I'm an authority on birth and babies. I am definitely not, but. I have to think that the the goodness on the other side of the pain is one reason why you just endure your way through it. Because something great is coming. And from a big picture standpoint, I wonder if that's a part of what Jesus is developing in his disciples, is this realization that through your persecution, through your trials, through your difficulty... Um, through the crisis, through the seasons of life, whatever it may be, that God is not going to waste any of those things. He will use every single one of them, uh, like birth pains, to bring you to a point of bringing some some sort of new life into the world. And that could be that could be peace. That could be healing. It could be restoration of a relationship. It, it could be uh, reconciliation with someone that you've been at, at odds with. It, 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 there's there's so many possibilities of like what what is God what is God trying to birth that's new in me? What is He trying to bring about that is that is full of life and and that looks like Him and all that? And and how is He using what is awful about life right now? How is He going to use that? to bring that new life into the world, that new part of life for me, for you. And what that does is it changes the way that we look at our trials and our difficulties. And one reason why I think that's important for us is because those disciples didn't, they didn't obsess only, they didn't obsess over the destruction of the temple. This became a part of what it meant to be a disciple, and we see it in other places, and here's, here's why. Like James... 
James, who was the uh, brother of Jesus, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And then he believed it so much that he became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. This is what he says. This is how he relays what Jesus is saying. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The trial is a birth pain. It is producing this new life in you, this new steadfastness, this endurance, this beautiful thing in you that God used that difficulty to forge you in this you into this like new beautiful version of yourself, let's say. Um, this is how Peter said it. You're, I read this verse like every week, it feels like. Um, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like, yes, you're, you're going through stuff, absolutely. But it is going to produce something in you, and what it produces is going to make you love God more. Absolutely will. Here's Paul's version of it. Now keep in mind, Paul, uh, so just to back up just a little bit, so one of those faithful disciples was a guy named Stephen. Stephen... Um, stood to give an account of who Jesus is, and they killed him for it. And one of the people that killed him was a guy named Saul, uh, who then converted, basically was so moved by that testimony, it led to his conversion. He became Paul, and he wrote these words. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Look, what Jesus did on the Mount of Olives that day was not only prepare them for these catastrophic events, he prepared them for the everyday difficult parts of life. And it became a part of how they discipled others and how they trained others. And I promise you, we're here because of it. And it's something that we've, we have to let it seep into our hearts and into our minds. We have to teach it to one another. These kids have to grow up understanding this, that yes, life is hard, but God is always at work, and he is using that difficulty to produce beauty in you and in our world. He's coaching them and coaching us of how to get through. He's not dismissing that, yes, it's going to be hard, but he's saying don't focus on the pain. Your focus has to be on what God is doing on the other side. That's why he told them, be on guard, don't be anxious, don't be worried, endure, stand firm to the end, you will be saved. Don't focus, don't let your obsession be with how difficult this is. But what is God trying to give birth to through it in your life? This becoming a part of just, just, this is just what it means to be a Christian. This is what their reputation was. That's part of why I got them killed, because people looked at it and they said, oh, they're, that's weak, that's soft, they're this, they're this. And we're standing on their shoulders, you know, because of it. And I'm sure this reaches into your life. I'm sure that, that you are going through various trials, as they uh, would say. It may feel like level 10. It may feel like more five or six. Maybe it feels like a two. It doesn't really matter. 
God is using it, like thinking of it as this is producing something. It will not be wasted. So, all of it, though, comes down to Jesus is saying the ultimate thing that's going to happen from all of this, not only what they will go through, but what you and I go through right now, this is all an opportunity to show that Jesus really is who he says he is. It's evident there. It can be evident in your life as you go through things. The whole big overarching truth is, I believe Jesus is who he says he is, so I'm going to endure my way through this and believe he's producing something beautiful. Because I don't have to go to a temple. I don't have to sacrifice a goat. I don't have to do any of those things anymore. The overlap of heaven and earth lives in me. What a, what a beautiful moment. What a beautiful truth. And so we begin here a slow study over the last couple of days because he had to set all this into motion. He had to say yes to all this happening and unfolding. And so I look forward to the next couple of weeks as we go slowly through the book of Mark um, to seeing what God wants to do. Now, how this applies to your life is going to be different for all of us. And so I'm not going to try to, I'm going to, try to get in your business. Uh, you, you take it. You steward it. You see what God has for you. And if you've been around Living Hope for a little while, you know that we... Um, we like to sing on, afterwards as well, because sometimes God gets stuff certain, and you're like, I need to sing it, I need, I need to sing, I need to pray, I need to process this for a moment. And so we're going to do that together. So let's stand, let me pray for us as our musicians come back, and we spend some time just rejoicing over these, these truths. Father, I'm so grateful for all that you have done and are doing. What an amazing moment where you prepare your disciples for this, for what this sounds terrible that they would have to go through it. But from your perspective, it was going to produce something so unique. It was this, this vindication as the, that, that you are the son of God, that you are uh, the savior of the world that you are heaven and earth. And so God, I ask on behalf of the room that you help us to grab onto the things that we're supposed to grab onto from this. Just that reminder that the trials that we go through are, are, uh, they're not done in a way that's separate from you and your work, that you use them as tools of refinement and growth, that you are trying to give birth to things in our lives and you're, you're willing to use the trials we go through because of our broken world and our broke, own brokenness. You use that stuff to bring about glory for you and goodness and betterment for us and true shalom where we are able to walk more in the fullness of who you created us to be. And all of that is only because Jesus said yes. You, you could have left us in our sins. You could have left us alone just to fend for ourselves. But Jesus said yes to this whole plan. That's why we're here. And so, God, in these moments as we sing, I pray that um, you would help us to just embrace whatever it is you're stirring in us this, this morning. And we love you.